Stardate 1127.2020. Welcome back to Star Trek Discovery Pod, a kind of smart, kind of funny podcast about new Star Trek and beyond. I'm your reluctant captain, Mike Moody Garcia. With me on the view screen, we have Mariah Gossett, Clyde Haynes, and Grant Davis is not with us today. It's his birthday. Mm-hmm. So happy birthday, Grant. He did leave a surprise for us uh, that I will drop in a few minutes. Okay. So look forward to that. He did. Okay. He didn't want to. Uh, he didn't want this podcast to go without his mark. Of so, course, of course. Yeah. So we'll see that in a second. Um, so we're back to have a kind of a loose chat about season three, episode seven of Star Trek Discovery: Unification Three. So many numbers. Uh, I hope everyone who celebrates Thanksgiving had a great one. We were just chatting about that before. We had great Thanksgivings. We're recording this and streaming, of course, a day later than usual due to the holiday. But I'm looking forward to diving into this episode with everyone. This is kind of a, a meaty one. But before we do that, Mariah, can you tell everyone how they can support the podcast? Yes. So there's a few ways you can help and support this show. The first thing is to make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on the audio channel. So that's Apple or Spotify. Also make sure you're subscribed on YouTube. If you want to make sure you never miss us uh, going live, you can hit that notification bell. You'll get a little alert. It's super convenient. Um, All the links to where you can find our content is at StarTrekPod.co. You know what else is fun is if you think this is cool, but you want more, then you should come hang out in our Slack. Now, the best way to do that is to become part of our Patreon community. So if you go to patreon.com slash Star Trek pod and give us $2, one, two, then you get to become part of our Slack channel all-star team, which means you get to hang out, you get to talk about whatever you want, Star Trek related mostly, and do watch-alongs. Last night, I think, Mariah, you were saying that you guys did a, a watch-along of a DS9 episode. So, uh, yeah. It was a great time. Yeah, a couple of us wanted to kind of get together since there wasn't a live stream. And so we watched uh, the Deep Space Nine episode where they play baseball against the Vulcans. And it was a really fun, lighthearted team effort. Uh, perfect episode for the evening. Yeah. So come on board, hang out with us, become part of our Patreon community. Again, that's patreon.com slash Star Trek pod. And if you are watching us live tonight on YouTube, Twitch, Facebook, um, well, first of all, you notice Clyde and I are wearing, are both wearing red shirts. I, I missed the memo. I missed- <laughs> it it yeah. just means we I'm may not make it to the end of the episode. <laughs> yeah, we might. One of us, maybe both of us, might not make it to the end of the episode since we are the red shirts tonight. Uh, this is in honor of Grant, right? Mm-hmm. Our we regular lo- red we, shirt. We lost our red shirt, so we had to we represent lost, yeah, him. <laughs> had to represent. Uh, people in the chat are saying, "What's with the orange shirts?" I guess they look orange on the camera, oh. but they're red. Um, also, if you're watching us live on YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, or Facebook, please participate in that live chat. And if you have a comment or a question that you want us to talk about later on during the pod, just type the word pod in all caps before your comment so we can see it. All right. Let's board jump to Vulcan, I mean Navarre, and dive into Star Trek Discovery Season 3, Episode 7, Unification 3. So many numbers. This ep was written by Kristen Beyer, 
a long time uh, we know Christian Beyer, long time Trek novel mm-hmm. and comics writer. She wrote a bunch of the uh, the Voyager novels. She wrote long a Picard time. too. Yeah, she, she wrote uh, on Picard. A long time disco writer too, and directed by John Dudkowski. So this is the one where Michael sees Spock's dream of unification between the Romulans and the Vulcans become a reality. But her quest to resolve the origin of the burn might lead to a dissolution of the unification. Dun, dun, dun. Mm. Okay. As you might know, this is Star Trek Discovery Pod. We don't do hot takes. We do hot freaks. Hot freaks. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, Grant. Thank you, Grant. That's Thank a you. that's a grand surprise for us. In case you didn't catch it. <laughs> you gotta love it. <laughs> and that's not the only one he made. Tune in next week. We have another one. Okay. No. okay. All right. Um okay, hot freak time. Who wants to go first? I can go for it. Um I thought this was a great episode. Um I really enjoyed so I uh in our Slack channel we pre-watched unification one and two to get ready for this one. And I have to say, if you haven't watched those episodes in a long time, I think it is the perfect way to come into this episode because they really feed into each other plot wise. And so for me, it felt a lot like a classic, um, you know, original series or next gen episode. I mean, it's a courtroom case essentially. Um, And so we have some cowboy diplomacy going on. We also have this inner struggle of Tilly getting this offer to become first officer and what that means for her and her friends um, and the relationship that's going to change with her friends, as well as seeing how Burnham can use her inner struggle to really be the best officer that she can be in this particular moment. So I think it is one for the books. I think it's one that's going to be remembered for a while. I also thought all of the clips of Spock was really smart. Um, like great placement. Also, what a tearjerker. I feel like these writers really know how to play to the emotional uh, s- struggles. It could be that I'm just more prone to be emotional lately, but like, it's, it's like, uh, they really know how to build it and then to draw it out of me. So <laughs> kudos to the writers on this one. Clyde, do you want to go or you want me to go? No, I want to go. Um, I, I like this episode. There were some things about it that was I thought were pretty interesting. One, Mike, last week you called out that you thought it was going to be Tilly who was going to be the first officer. Mm-hmm. Um, so kudos to you for getting that right, though I will point out acting first officer. We'll, we'll see if that sticks. Um, I So I, I kind of liked it. I think um, it was important that we got a chance to, to deal with Burnham and the I don't fit in here um, and kind of I, I don't know if that that chapter is closed, but I do feel like we got a little bit of resolution um, and it was nice to see her and book kind of continue and establish that this is a bona fide romance. Um, and it's always great to see, you know, Burnham reunited with her mom. There were a lot of like great little kind of things that questions that we had that were kind of brought back into fruition kind of gave us some answers. Uh, you know, and I thought that this was a great vehicle for Saru as a diplomat. I think that that is a great role. 
And that might be an excellent kind of way for him to be a captain, right? As he establishes himself as a Star Trek captain, Saru as the diplomat seems to make a lot of sense. Like it just, it seemed to fit. So I, uh, I, I, I really like that. Um, and then, you know, the whole, you know, even Burnham saying, did I miss the say yes part? Like that say yes part was kind of neat. I, I don't know that I'm completely sold on Tilly as a first officer, but I love the fact that the crew really supported her. So, um, yeah, I thought this was a good episode and, you know, and it's getting back, Mariah, like you said, it's getting back to a little bit of TNG where there it's each episode is kind of mission focused. Um, and, and I kind of like that. It's something different. I'm not sure if I'll love it forever, but right now I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I'm pretty much with both of you guys. I, I enjoyed this episode. I'm still kind of working out my feelings about it. Honestly, I will say at the beginning, I thought this was going, I thought it was going to coast a little too much on nostalgia, you know, for mm-hmm. things like Spock Prime, for Leonard Nimoy, for TNG, not to mention our feelings for Ethan Peck's Spock, which is probably fine since he was a Discovery creation. But anyway, even though I like and value the original Unification two-parter from TNG, and I enjoyed going back to that, and I really like the Nimoy homage in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, just going into this at the beginning felt like it was going to just coast too much on that references and nostalgia, which isn't always bad, but it's still not great. But the episode totally turned around for me in the second half. It, it all became about Michael and the disco reestablishing the core values of the Federation, you know, through Michael's like intense interrogation in that trial. I forgot what they called it, but I really love seeing Michael challenged in such a deep and personal way. Like the resolution to the trial was really unexpected and the way she gave up what she was like so strongly, like single-mindedly pursuing in order to help keep the peace of the unification on Navarre was, it's just another great example of that kind of aspirational storytelling that Star Trek delivers so well. Like she put her own needs aside for the betterment of that culture, right? For the betterment of the dream of unification. And she was rewarded for that selfless, honorable choice. Like that was a really good, like Federation, Starfleet, Star Trek story. Uh, I really love that. So that was great. Uh, Kirsten Beyer, who wrote this up, really knows her Trek. Obviously, she ended up making this a very compelling, like, 32nd century story that has these strong ties to the 23rd and 24th century stuff that we love. So I think that was great. You know, this could have really, like, leaned on homage and nostalgia too much, like I thought it was going to, but it didn't. Um, and it, it kind of did its own thing while building upon that unification storyline. Also, I'm here for Tilly as uh, as first officer. I think it makes sense for me, and we'll talk about it in a little bit. Let's dive a little more into this episode. Um, I was really into all the tie-ins. Like, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, we had a tie-in, obviously, to TNG. Uh, we see the results of Spock's work for the Vulcan and Romulan unification come to fruition, finally. Um, 
centuries after his disappearance or death. Uh, there are tie-ins to Picard. Michael's mother, mm-hmm. what? Yeah, is, is an absolute candor murder nun. Apparently, I the, love the that. same. I, yeah, I I loved it, and it felt like I was rewarded for watching Picard. <laughs> <laughs> like honestly, that's not a shot at Picard, but it was oh, yeah. like. But but there have been these moments that I feel like in this episode, because right now, Discovery is the flagship product, yeah. right? This is the one that, that if you're going to watch one, this is the one. But I felt like in this season, those of us who've watched Picard and those of us who've watched um, The Lower Decks, they've given us like just a little bit of like, hey, here's your reward. Like you watch this and now you understand this. So you understand the murder nuns. You understand the Orions. Like you're like, okay, yeah, now I'm up, like there's there's the payoff. So I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I, it was a good example of uh, a callback to something we've seen before, but also it was universe building because mm-hmm. it wasn't a, uh, one of the arguments about referencing and um, bringing characters back is that it makes the universe seem small, right? It's like, oh, we always run into the same 10 people in this vast universe. It happens in Star Wars, happens in Star Trek. But here, the the reference to the murder nun, sorry, I'm forgetting the actual the name. Malat. Yes. The reference to the Gatmalat was, was really great because it referenced... A, uh, a tribe of people and not it wasn't like bump we didn't bump into elnor when he was mm-hmm. a kid or something that mm-hmm. direct you know and it was really emotional because it was michael's mom did you enjoy that connection maria yeah i thought it was like i didn't see it coming you know what i mean yeah. like when they're like oh this quat malat i was like oh yes more ninja warrior nuns like i am here for whomever they're gonna send i'm really excited about this and then it being Michael's mom, I thought was such a twist that I really didn't expect. And so I liked that. Um, It also, I thought it was a smart way to bring her in without having to have this whole rehash of her looking to, to find her mom, you know, essentially. And, Mm -hmm. and the line at the end of her being like, now you know where to find me was like, just like the cherry on top of the emotional Sunday that I had in this episode. I also would be remiss if we didn't flash all the way back to the beginning of this episode where we finally see Burnham and Book hook up. Like, talk <laughs> about burying the lead. Love it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I, I got to agree with you, Mariah. I think the, the thing that was so surprising to me was that I was surprised when she took off that veil and it was her. I yep. did not see that coming. And I feel like for... I hate to say it, but it's almost like we've forgotten about her. Like we just assume for whatever reason, we assume that we wouldn't see her knowing that they followed her, right? Like they were going to, they were hoping to see her. So the fact that we, we actually saw her was, was it, it caught me off guard. I really was thinking like, oh, this is going to be like the long lost, you know, you know, descendant of Spock or right. something like that. Mm-hmm. That is where I was going. I was like, oh, this is going to be like your great, 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 great niece or something like that. And so the fact that it was her mother just was came out of left field. Yeah. Yeah. T- two things. Um, the Michael and book hookup was great. 
And yeah, I well. thought what we saw last week with the kiss was all we were going to see um, there. Yeah, there. I'm really glad we're not having the will they, won't they. It's right. just they are, which is great. And I think, you know, at the, you know, kind of jumping again to the very end of the episode when he's like, you feel like home. And she's just like, I have to stay here. You know, I now have this project and I have my work and that's. And after this giant emotional roller coaster of a day, I've kind of come to terms with where I need to be for now. Um, so I'm glad it's seeming like there isn't going to be a huge tension there for now, you know, that might come later. But I'm appreciating that she's having some sort of stability in at least that corner of her house, um, yeah. which is nice to see for, for her character, for sure. And there's, and a, there's an even more relatable tension in terms of, does he belong there? Mm -hmm. They belong together, obviously, right. in an emotional way, in a way in which they love each other. But does he belong there in the shuttle bay of the Discovery for the rest of his life tagging on? What is he going to do? How are they going to to deal with that? Mm -hmm. um, you know, they can't, they can't just space Skype, you know. <laughs> there has to be a decision made um, in terms of where he fits in, not just in Michael's life, but on the show as a character. Um, and I'm really interested to find out where book lands at the end of the season. Well, Mike, I really thought that that was a great kind of add in to the, the tension and the drama because it's actually real, mm -hmm. right? Like when you, you've got two people who come from different backgrounds, literally different like timelines and they have different missions, but in that embrace, he says, you feel like home. And she's like, you do too. So there's this acknowledgement that they want to be together. But in life, we see this happen all the time. Two people want to be together, but their careers or you know their visions are separate. And then at some point, somebody has to decide, do we try and do this together? Or do we, you know, do we try and do this long distance, you know, Burnham, you got a ship that can be anywhere in an instant. So, <laughs> you know, long distance is not really long distance for you. It's just, you know, you just, I mean, you gave up first officer, so you can't exactly tell the ship where to go. Mm -hmm. But, but so I, I like the fact that that's in there. And, and like you, Mike, I'm curious to see if the tension will be that book is there. Does he find a way to fit in on the ship or, does eventually his own calling to be the space worm whisperer pulls him away. Right. It's a lot there to, that I'm interested in. Yeah, it's a lot more relatable than a tired will they or won't they plot line that stretches over several seasons. Like, thank you, Disco, for, for not giving that to us uh, yet again. Yeah. I thought, um, too, kind of going back to uh, our conversation about references, you know, there's, um, as there always is, there's tons of Easter eggs and stuff. But one of the things I really liked was we've, in multiple iterations and timelines of Trek, have seen episodes where there's multiples of Spock, which I think is kind of fun. Um, and so I appreciated that we got, you know, the flashback to the last time she saw her brother. We get the, um, you know, the clip from Unification Part uh, 1 and 2 that's c coming from Picard's personal journal, um, you know, and then we also just have him as like, 
the figure. And then we also see childhood Spock. And so it's like we get to see all of these iterations. And obviously, he's Spock as a whole. And I think it is a total honor to Leonard Nimoy's hand in, in creating Star Trek and creating that character um, like his work within Star Trek directing. I know he didn't create it, but, mm-hmm. you know, he directed su- a bunch of episodes. He directed a few of the films. Um, you know, this episode, I think, came out on the anniversary of our favorite film, the one with the whales. <laughs> and um, uh, and it's also um, Unification 1 and 2 were dedicated to Gene Roddenberry because he had passed away shortly before they came out as well. So I think there are... Um, I think there's just the right amount of fan service in this particular episode and those layers there for people that I really appreciated, you know, even into it being called Navarre, like the, the planet being called Navarre, uh, which is apparently from, you know, uh, OG Star Trek fan culture, like books. And then um, they also had, I thought a very sweet, little reference to the USS uh, Yel- Yelkin. Did you all catch that one too? I did. Yeah. RIP um, Anton. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I think there's like, anyway, I just really appreciated the balance that was there because if mm-hmm. you weren't as aware of all of these references, it was still very enjoyable because of course I didn't catch them all on like first watch. It comes with like, Oh yeah. Oh, that's so smart. Like great job writers. <laughs> Way to do your job in this episode. Um, but yeah, and then like being able to watch the Admiral also explain the back history to Burnham and Saru, I thought was a smart way to sort of catch the audience up to what they might not know as well. Yeah, you made a really good point about the references. I thought they were uh, woven in really smartly and they boosted everything up in this story. And, and this episode is really telling its own story that was built, that it built, it built it upon or built upon. I can't speak too much turkey. <laughs> it it built upon uh, what we'd seen before, not just in the unification storyline, but there were, you know, the Picard uh, with, the, with the nuns. And of course, even the Star Trek 2009 movie had a reference when it was mentioned that Spock abandoned the Federation when he went through the Kelvinverse portal. Mm-hmm. I mean, this this episode was a great love letter to Star Trek without being... Um, a soulless piece of fan service. Yeah. It did its own thing and it really brought the feels. What did y'all think about, um, you know, I kind of came away from the episode being a little bit more weary of our current Federation, just based on the, the reviews you could say of, of the Vulcans and the Romulans of what was sort of going on at the time when they left. Um, you know, obviously more on the the Vulcan side of things, it appears in this episode. But even as Saru, I loved the way Saru talked to our Vulcan president, the way that he was able to just allow allow her to talk about her issues without saying like, no, you're wrong. Like being like, please tell me about these issues, because he's coming from a time where the Federation was so strong and those ideals seem so integral to the core. And you know, it kind of reminded me of, um, you know, the idea of like, once something becomes so powerful, there's no way corruption cannot happen. And we've seen that plot line in some of the movies before, at least. And so I, I wanted to know how y'all are feeling about the Federation at this point. 
The Federation at this point, and what we've heard about it in the past like couple decades since Disco has been gone from the its original timeline, it seems that they turned into more of a bureaucratic organization, even more than they were before. Not necessarily super corrupt or evil, but just dwindling, stretched too thin, and maybe with a leader in our in our in our new admiral who does feel the weight of responsibility and not enough resources. Right. That's what it feels like. They're just stretched mm-hmm. too thin and they're tired. But I think um, a reason Disco is depicting the Federation and Starfleet that way is because it allows us to see Saru as this wonderful asset who fully embodies the key principles of Starfleet and the Federation and can hop around the galaxy and remind people what Starfleet is, what the Federation is, and what they're missing out on if they don't come back to the Federation. Because Saru is just embodying so much of the aspirational nature, um, everything good about the Federation. And we saw that, we saw proof of that, just like you said, with um, Tarina, uh, played by uh, Tara Rosling, which I thought was, she was really good in this role as a Vulcan, the Vulcan president. Their relationship really hit me on a couple of levels. One, because you're seeing Saru be a true ambassador for the greatness of the Federation and reminding others, this is what we can be again. This is what we can build. And you can come back when you're ready. Um, not give, not pressuring anybody mm-hmm. to do it. And also, I thought there was a great meeting of the minds and hearts with Saru and Tarina. I really like them together, and I really hope we see them together again. I don't really want to will-they-won't-they romance with them, although I wouldn't be against it, but I think they would make a a really good on-screen pair. I feel like they're going to be really fun pen pals. Yeah. 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 I I think that what we're looking at is uh, Saru represents this idealistic, perfect federation that we got in TOS and TNG and probably a little bit of Voyager and DS9 too. And and I think that is representative of really television in that era, right? And so you have this idea of there there was a lot less conflict. There was a lot less gray, uh, a lot of, you know, much, much more or much fewer anti-heroes and, three-dimensional characters that were that were flawed yet heroic at the same time. And so I just think that when we look at television in that era, we had this federation that was ideally perfect, right? And Saru represents that. Now today in 2020, right, most of the television that we see that is created is much more dynamic. We see this nuance, right? Heroes are both heroic and horrific almost at the same time. And I think we also have a, a, a greater tolerance for political drama um, and kind of governmental organizations that are deeply flawed, often corrupt, and sometimes self-serving. And now what we're looking at is the Federation got to a point, <laughs> you know, through time where they couldn't agree and some of the decisions weren't quite, oh, we should do this versus that. Um, and and that's where they are today. So do I trust the Federation? I, I probably trust the Federation 
in this time period a lot less than I did in the TNG time period. Because now they seem a lot like our own political structures where sometimes they're doing things not for the, the good of all, right? For the good of the many, but they're doing it because they think it's right and it's going to serve them. And so I, I think that what we're seeing is, Mike, to your point, we're seeing Saru as a reminder of, of what the Federation could be. And I think that's a really interesting kind of caveat to what Discovery is bringing. It's it's almost like there's this old school value brought to this new school chaos and going, hey, here's what here's what we could be. This is where we're going to do things, not because we have to do them, right? And it's not just Saru. Burnham looking and going, you know what? Keep your data. If mm-hmm. this is what it costs... This is not what the Federation is about. I'm right. out. I, I'm right. out. That's a hallmark to we're going to be better. And it's encouraging to me because I'm like, man, could we get that at some point? Can we get somebody that goes, you know what? I'm I'm an, enough of this bar, bipartisan like drama and nonsense. I just, can we be better? Um, and that was really interesting to me. So, you know, Mariah, to your point, I'm... I'm optimistically hopeful that the Federation will be better, but right now I don't trust anybody in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is hard to trust them. And I I really hope that we see Saru, even though it, it might be kind of tropey, the show is really earning putting Saru and the disco crew in a position of really high power amongst this new Federation because they are, they should be the flagship for mm-hmm. what the Federation is, for what Starfleet is and could be. Yeah, I agree with with all of your points. And I thought that was such a smart move. You know, watching the the sort of trial take part in how quickly Burnham thought she could just appeal to the fundamentalist, right? Because mm-hmm. she's like, oh, they're only going to be using logic. You know, there were so many great moments in this episode that weren't so action packed. And I kind of appreciated all of these, these small things when, you know, um, her mom is like, you know, the council isn't the only people in the room. You need to prove it to, to other people in this room that you're worthy because there's so many eyes upon you right now. But also there's a line, I'm, I'm going to butcher it, but it was something like, essentially all of these people believe what they believe and you pushing their boundaries is just going to push them farther into their own corners. And I was like, Oh, isn't that every day on the internet? It's like, (laughs) um, so true to watch people who are so ingrained in what they want to believe that they're not able to listen to other opinions. And so she essentially had to sacrifice her own wants and needs to prove that she was trustworthy and to say, you might not trust me, but I'm going to trust you with my data. So I'm going to give you the data no matter what, if you give it to me or not. um, And then you can use with it, do what you will with it. Um, And so I thought that was like, it was like watching, I also just finished the Queen's Gambit. It was like watching a cool chess game, right? Like you're watching yeah. people try to yeah. outsmart each other. And, and no while, spoilers. I got <laughs> I won't spoil anything. episode and a half and I'll be done. No spoilers. <laughs> uh, so good. But, um, you know, and then her mom sort of pulling the ultimate card out of her pocket, right? Of like, I know I'm going to emotionally manipulate you right now, but it's going to be for the for the better. And you're going to see why at the very end of this. <laughs> <laughs> that that was really powerful. And I thought it was a really smart, clean way to solve the issue of the mother because we know that Burnham is is pained by 
the fact that her mother is missing again, right? And just like you guys were talking about earlier, I really don't want to see, you know, Disco Season 4, The Search for Burnham's Mom. You know, I don't want that to be a whole plot line again, because we kind of already did that. But it was such a smart and clean uh, introduction or reintroduction to that character to put her in this role, because not only um, does it tie into Picard, it really cleans up that arc of trying to look for Burnham's mom. It makes sense that she landed there and this this uh, sect took her in because we've seen them take in outsiders like that before. That makes That's really clean. It makes perfect sense. And it just makes brilliant sense for this episode that she would be the one there who knows who Burnham is and knows how to emotionally manipulate her to to get what she needs. It was perfect. Um, it was, was it a little convenient? Sure. But it was so powerful that it really worked for me. Um, it washed away that kind of storytelling convenience that could be, that it could be, uh, you know, knocked down a few points for, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, it, in true Trek, Trek fashion, Burnham, Burnham's ultimate goal is to find out what caused the burn, uh, to try to erase the impact of it for the betterment of not only the Federation, but for the entire galaxy, right? And if her goal is to reunify the Federation and to make the galaxy a more trusting, safer place, she did realize that I have to drop this right now because what I'm doing is tearing the unification of the Romulans and the Vulcans apart. And that is... I can't be a part of that and that can't happen. So the fact that she gave up her quest was so admirable and so Starfleet and so Star Star Trek. uh, It just gave me all the feels. Um, Let's talk about some other feels. First officer Tilly. Mm -hmm. I'm not mad at it. I'm not mad at it. It makes sense. It makes sense for the show. How? Mm -hmm. Okay. Elaborate, please. It makes sense for the show. It makes sense for Tilly's arc and, I think it underlines Star Trek's fondness for aspirational storytelling, just like we were talking about. Like, we saw Tilly, we were introduced to Tilly in season one as this cadet. Then we saw her become an ensign. Then we saw her go through a training program. We're following her arc. She didn't finish the training program. She didn't finish, but we're following her arc. And she has, you can agree with this, Clyde, she's somebody that we root for. Somebody who has earned the faith and trust of not only her superiors, but the rest of the crew. Yes. So, and everybody roots for Tilly. Right. So, I did think I'm happy to have seen that she was self, the character is written to be self aware enough to say, Are you making me your first officer because I am someone you can boss around, or do you want me to actually do this? And I, and I, I appreciated that because I was like, This is, because I could see it being that way where Saru's like, I, I could kind of use someone who's a little bit easier to work with. Who's going to help me command this crew. Um, you know, I'm interested to see she's stepped up in many ways and she's obviously very smart. This character is highly intelligent and in many ways, I think both emotionally and intellectually. Yes. However, I still feel she still feels green in so many ways. So I'm a little mm-hmm. I was a little surprised by it. I'm excited to see where they take it. You know, as a viewer, I'm excited to just watch what's going to happen with it. I also liked 
the scene between her and Stamets when she's just like, I might be your boss. And he's like, I have to take orders from you. (laughs) (laughs) But listen, I mean, on an emotional level, it really works for the character and it really works for the show. And, And Disco, since the beginning, Disco and the crew have been doing their own thing, charting their own path on everything since the beginning the the way they fight the way they the spore drive it's all been antithetical to what you're supposed to do with rank and file so why stop now also also (laughs) tilly is a solid role model who doesn't conform to the style that you know the tired stereotypical straight white male mode of sci-fi action star and we need more of that but that's not the only reason this makes sense i mean um rank wise yes there are issues with it and yes that's, that's even brought up <laughs> there's but, huge issues with it big but, holes like massive holes but you know we're not going we're not fuck rank man rank isn't like, getting look, us anywhere with the admiral I, I gotta say this look i look i'm all for tilly consider me a fan of tilly mm-hmm. and you know what happens when you have someone who goes from cadet to an instant and they're a star and they're smart and the crew loves them and they're great. You know what happens? You promote them to lieutenant. That's what happens. And then after that, you promote them to commander or lieutenant commander. There are a lot of things that you could do before jumping them to XO. And Kevin Richardson uh, has a comment in the chat that I thought was absolutely perfect. Um, And no, it's not that one. It's a little earlier where he talks about, he says... Uh, a first officer not capable of doing the role, which is to be fully capable, a fully capable captain in waiting, makes no sense. I, I think what we've seen in Star Trek and almost every Star Trek is when the captain is engaged, the XO becomes the captain, right? We we even saw that in the J.J. Abrams episodes where you look up and be like, oh, okay, well, this makes sense. Tilly as captain, to me, points, I, I think what what it causes me to be concerned about is it makes me look around the rest of the ship and go, wow, you're all very junior. That's what it made me think. Because it made me think, like, Burnham seemed absolutely capable of being first officer, that XO, being able to, to be the captain when Saru wasn't there. And in fact, she was, right? When they, with the seed, with the seed ship. What happens if that happens again? What happens if Saru is needed to negotiate because he clearly has some, some serious, like, diplomatic skills? Mm-hmm. Captain Tilly? Captain Killy, yes. <laughs> Captain I think- Tilly? Well, I don't know. Well, it, she's only acting, right? Mm-hmm. She's acting yeah. first officer. I think if she was put in charge of the ship, Tilly will Tilly up and it'll be fine. It'll be <laughs> okay because um, not only does she have the heart and the spirit and the knowledge, but she, like Saru, she understands and holds dear the tenets of the Federation and of Starfleet and will do the right thing. And I think um, we've seen her kick some ass too. And not just ask Killy. And I think she, she'll be okay. Will it last? I don't know. Uh, my guess is I'll put Burnham back in that role now that her her Where Do I Belong arc has come to a conclusion in this episode, thanks to the trial and, and um, the dealings with her mom, which was so emotional and so great uh, in this episode. 
the episode before this, I was convinced that Burnham might not be part of the crew officially anymore. And this episode completely turned that around Mm -hmm. in a legitimate way. Um, But yeah, I think we're going to see Burnham back in that XO spot um, before the season is over. But I'm not mad at Tilly being there for now. I still think Willow would have been a great choice. I think Willow would have been a great choice. I think Nan would have been... Uh, an incredible choice, and as Kang says, Nan said, "Filling out in the seed ship, doing it, nothing." It, it feels like they wrote her out just so that she wouldn't be the obvious choice. Maybe, yeah, maybe it's possible. Um, I had a, a question for y'all since we're kind of getting towards possible burn conversations because now we are going to have some more data as we go into this next episode, and we, you know, now know that the source of the burn was not this experimental thing that the Vulcans and the Romulans had come up with. I feel a Mariah like conspiracy <laughs> theory, theory coming on. Here we go. So the next episode, next week's episode is called The Sanctuary. And so I looked up because we've had a few uh, common titles this season. I wanted to see if there's any possible crossovers. And so there is a Deep Space Nine episode called Sanctuary, where some displaced humanoids from the Gamma Quadrant claim Bajor as their home. I don't know if y'all remember this particular episode. Yeah, but Mike knows every episode. Not, <laughs> not everyone, but yeah. it's heavily linked to the Dominion, and so I'm not as familiar with the Dominion because I'm still going through my Deep Space Nine rewatch. But I wanted to see what y'all thought about the possibility of the Dominion being a possible culprit to the burn. I would love it. Um, in DS Nine, the Dominion was established as just as, if not as threatening as. The Borg, if not more threatening than the Borg. And the thing about the Dominion is that they're not cold, you know, soulless, you know, machine Mm -hmm. men like the Borg. They're people. And they've been around for forever. And they're really dark. And they really hate the Federation. Yeah. And that would make a lot of sense. And there is some, uh, you know, and we saw now that like we saw a Cardassian in the lineup of captains. So we see that Mm -hmm. the at least a Cardassian. I don't know if Cardassia has officially joined is a member of of the Federation at this point. We don't have like a confirmed list of everyone. But seeing a a Cardassian in the lineup makes me think it's a possibility. But um, there is something I was reading about the Dominion, about the idea that um, they want to be able to control everything because then no one can hurt you, right? And right. so if the Federation at at the point of when the burn happened was getting so big, it was probably to the point there would have been no possible way for them to have any additional control, right? And last season, who was our big bad? A con- control. Anyway, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I could get really stupid about this. but It makes sense. And d- the Dominion is very compelling because they're – their motives are based in trauma. Um, they were a, a a race of people who were just treated so poorly and terribly by um, by what they call solids, mm-hmm. people who are not shapeshifters like they are. And I think that is a really compelling place to come from uh, in storytelling when your villain is completely influenced by this this trauma and who is somewhat relatable. And I would love to see that again in Star Trek. Yeah. Um I got a I got a quick question about the um it it, it was kind of weird to me that the Romulans and the Vulcans in this episode think that they caused the burn with SB19. Like SB19, was that 
did I get this right? Is that a project to develop an alternative to dilithium base warp travel? Yes. So it was okay. essentially like creating miniature wormhole wormholes all across the subspace. And so um the way the Admiral seemed to explain it was that it, uh, and that's why they had sensors set up everywhere was to be able to, to monitor all of these wormholes. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. That would, oh, well, that's another possibility uh, for your uh, dominion theory, because right. how do we get to the dominion? They travel through the wormhole. Yeah. Oh, there's a really interesting <laughs> theory going on in the mm-hmm. chat that grudge is a changeling. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Who said that? But uh, was it who said it who first? Started it. Yeah. That's uh, great. But yeah, Ooh, that would be really cool. Would, I mean, that would make that actually makes quite a bit of sense. Yeah. Oh, P. W. Gregory says. I guess if this theory is true, he says, "I'm sad now that Rene Abijouan can no longer play Odo." I thought about that. Because mm-hmm. he sad obviously is, well, no spoilers for Mariah. <laughs> yes. It's fine. It, it's it's fine. a very old show. I've been spoiled because yeah. I've hopped around a few times. Like, I've well, just finally learned we yeah. don't have, uh, you know, uh, Dax is not the same mm-hmm. trill partway through. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought that could be interesting. And I know from the clips that we're going to see next week, it looks like we might finally see one of our Emerald Chain big bads, possibly. Um, from that. And so, you know, in my mind, it, based on what I've read, you know, I need to continue watching Deep Space Nine, but the idea of the Dominion and then seeing how sort of um, like, I don't know the right word for this, but like so archaic, I guess, uh, the the way that the Emerald Chain is functioning, you know, like they're enslaving people and they're running these shipyards and they're sort of like all back channel alley working and trying to, you know, continue to oppress populations to maintain control. Based on what I read, seemed like a possibility that there's a link there, although it could just be, you know, there's a different big bad and, and I'm totally wrong. But it's fun to think about. It is. Very true. Um, okay. Well, thank you for explaining the SB19 thing for me mm-hmm. and then putting in my head that <laughs> they created a, a manufactured wormhole that the Dominion or the Changelings or the founders, as they have a lot of names, so many. were able to come through and, uh, <laughs> and just fuck shit up. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. We got to get Grant to do a video on that. Mm-hmm. That's going to be good. We'll talk to him. Uh, then I got to teach him about DS9. That'll be fun. Okay. <laughs> Maybe we can finally You'll get him to watch that. it. Yeah. Ha- happy birthday, Grant. We have homework for you. <laughs> we have homework for you, Grant. Um, I really loved one of my favorite episodes or one of my favorite scenes in this episode was the Nimoy tribute. Mm-hmm. Not only was it a wonderful callback to Nimoy and a tribute to him and his portrayal of Spock, but it was also... It was just so layered um, watching Burnham watch that and see who her brother became. And also just as a nerd, just, you know, Star Trek nerd to see that it came from Picard's logs Mm -hmm. and Picard was name checked on disco. Um, You know, as someone who doesn't really like a lot of fan service, that was a little bit of it. And I think it worked really well. It really laid the foundation for what was going to happen in this episode. So good job, disco. 
Yeah, what I loved about it was that character more than any other character, even more than Kirk. Um, we've seen so many iterations of Spock, right? So we've, we've just got a ton of actors who've played Spock in some just in, in some form mm-hmm. or fashion. So to to kind of bring it back and say, okay, we're going to show an image of Spock and we're going back to the person who's done Spock so monumentally better than anybody else. And that's not a shot at at anyone, but like the originator who has mm-hmm. set the gold standard, who literally is one of the best Star Trek actors in the entire franchise felt to quote book felt like home it felt like let's not try and you know age ethan up right let's don't do that let's let's go ahead and do leonard nimoy who is who even showed up in the the abrams universe films like let's go back to the to that spock um and then close this loop that just felt right um, so I was all for that. Hell yeah. Yeah, I agree with both of y'all. And I think the other the other thing I really liked in this episode was how the production design called back to so many um, kind of older references as well. I know we weren't on planet, which I was very disappointed. I was like, ooh, please let us go to some cool chamber, yeah. you yeah. know, but, um, y- you know, I understand like production budgets happen. So, but what they did was really smart in the way that they sort of changed that room to feel like a, a true court chamber. Um, you know, the gongs and then the fire are very similar to, um, you know, Spock's wedding from the original series. And then um, in search for Spock, when they have to put his like soul back into his body, when we get that big ceremony scene, there's like all of those different pieces to it. So it felt it felt right. And even in um, from Picard, from those flashes we would get from the like Romulan secret service people, they're all around and doing that ritual. And now I can't remember the terms, but Zadvash. Yeah, the Zadvash, you know, like I, I appreciate the use and even down to the badges being the combination of the Vulcan, um, mm-hmm. like logo, not logo, but like symbol um, yeah. with the Romulan insignia. Well. Yeah. Anyway, they, I, I thought production and costuming just like really hit it out of the park in this episode. Yeah, I agree. We, um, we have a few comments in here. You want, you guys want to dive into the comments? Let's do it. All right. From Kevin Richardson, he says, can a nation be too big to govern? I ask as a Trek fan talking about the Federation and a Canadian looking at America. Uh, You know, hell yes. (laughs) Who's the political science major here? Uh, not I, I studied nothing but media and art, but I will say, I think, um, a big, I mean, so much of, of what's an issue with a lot of larger nations specifically in, in America. I mean, it's, it's appropriate to today is, is actually, um, you know, native American, uh, history day. It's native American, um, heritage history month. Um, and so much of like colonialism and racism is at the core of how this country was founded and how it was made to govern only for select people to be in charge and to have all of the wealth is, 
you know, a big problem. And so it's nice to watch things like Star Trek, where seemingly everyone starts with equality. And so, um, you know, can the Federation get too big for its britches? I, I think that is a valid question. And, and it's something that I hope that the series continues to explore and the idea that, uh, you know, with power comes the possibility of corruption. And, uh, you know, in this particular society, we're seeing now there is things like hunger and money and things being exchanged. And so we sort of lost some of that idealism at this point. So how do we get it back? Well, I think that the president said it is that the Federation got so big and you're focused on the good, the, the, the greater good of all that you then lost out on the, the hurt and suffering mm-hmm. of the few. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, is it's an interesting storyline and interesting thing to just to contemplate. But I think that's what we're looking at with the Federation as, as they grow, because that was their expansion, right? They, they grow, they're more and more member um, planets. And at some point you are making decisions on the whole that could actually sacrifice a few. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, what do you do with that? So can it get too big? I, I think I think the bigger you get, you have to have a governmental system at play that's conducive for that size. And what I get was the Federation just kept growing and their governmental system was the same. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I agree. I also... It seems to me that the Federation has always been depicted in terms of a pretty traditional political hierarchy. We have a president, we have a governing body, we have other satellite governments. Um, It didn't seem very inclusive. It seemed very top-down type of government. So I think what we're looking at now is a need for the leadership of the Federation to be more, I don't know, Representative. Yeah, more representative. Um, I think that's what we're needing. And I'm not sure how that will be depicted, but I think that's where we're going. Um, Phil R. says, Michael really stepped in it in this episode, initiating a Vulcan technicality, not knowing how the Romulan culture may have changed it. Very true. But it worked out for her really well Mm -hmm. because the way the Romulans changed it was to drop the murder the murder nuns in there uh to help the uh whoever initiated this and the murder nun ended up being her mom and it was all good yeah i thought it you know she could i could like see the gears turning i thought um Sinifa martin green did a great job of like showing someone who is like digging through those back files in your brain of like what else is there what else is there um, and and her being able to to call upon the to call in Ket, um, mm-hmm. I thought was really smart. But she prefaced it with, "Do you still, uh, you know, honor the old ways?" And so I think she was like, "Oh, I think I found it, but I need to make sure if I if I call this, this isn't something else." <laughs> um, Marge says, "What do you what do you make of Michael's decision to back out?" Of the debate. Was that a step forward for her character or strategic? I think that was a huge step forward. Um, she, we talked about this a bit earlier, but she, there was no strategy there. It was complete 
um, to quote the episode, absolute candor, in which she revealed her intentions, her soul. She put everything on the table, and she realized what was happening to tear apart this unification. So she backed off for the greater good. Um, yeah, definitely a step forward for her. Yeah, I, I agree, but I really just got to say um, I'm distracted by Mar- Marg's uh, kind of avatar there. Great avatar. Oh, Marge, Marge's avatar? Yes. So, uh, <laughs> but yes, I think that was definitely a step forward for her character and the Federation as a whole. Yeah, yeah I think it was, it was both. You know, she was being strategic about what she needed to do, but also was seeing the larger picture, which I think is a big moment for her character to sort of move out of maybe some... I don't want to say selfishness, but that that concept of I have to be the one to fix everything. And instead, she's seeing that she cannot be the one to fix this particular situation. Yeah, I saw a few comments earlier that I wanted to bring up, but um, our interface has is not showing them to me. So, oh, no, I'm going to. Yeah. So I'm going to pull up some some newer comments. Um Kevin says, why wouldn't the Federation put staff from the present time on Discovery? Imagine staffing an aircraft carrier <laughs> exclusively with people from the 12th century. <laughs> because the I uniforms na- wouldn't match, Kevin. I naturally assume that this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I've been waiting for this to happen. Like, Just like I was waiting for them to upgrade Discovery, I was thinking, I mean, you probably have more people than you have ships available. And you've got the flagship, the only ship that can bounce around. You, at one point, were going to take the entire Discovery team off of the ship, except for Stamets, and retrofit it with all new people. And instead, you're going to have, like, none of your 20th century, your, your what, 32nd century mm-hmm. people on it? You have right. none of those? I don't know. None of those people who know the galaxy, none of those people who have contact they just put some nanny cams in there it's all good i'm I'm just saying i'm with kevin on this i expect to see a few people um and i'm still waiting for willa to be one of those people yeah (laughs) clyde likes willa uh leads a says i 100 think tilly is going to do some kick-ass thing now that she knows she has everyone's support yeah, that was a great scene with everyone backing Tilly and Stamets orchestrating that and even like patching in Burnham at the end there. And I think uh, Tilly is the type of person who only, who only, who can only prosper with that kind of support. She might have some anxiety about being responsible for everybody's lives in the position that she's in now, but I don't think she's the type of character who will buckle under that pressure. Yeah, I'm assuming we're going to get an episode at some point where she's going to really prove her leadership uh, to to squash the doubters. <laughs> of which it appears there are many. There are many, yeah. There are many, <laughs> yeah. Including Kern, who says, it just wouldn't be believable that Starfleet would allow an ensign to be the first officer of their most advanced ship. They'll hand wave it for the show, but it's not believable. Fair. That's but all I'm saying. That's, that's fair. Saying. She is the most familiar with the engineering of that ship. Like, does her knowledge base outweigh her rank? Chief engineer being, I would, I, I would support her as chief engineer. All right. Right. That is a yeah. big jump in itself. Right? <laughs> that puts her in senior, senior staff. Like, those are the things that I'd be like, mm, that's a big job, but I'm with it. 
All right. First officer's oh. huge. I'm just saying. That's huge. All right. Choopy has a counterpoint. We have seen Tilly lead in multiple situations. On the Glen, in the Mycelial Network, at Eden, she is truly the only other member we've seen driven to command. That is true. From day one, she was she was a member of the crew who said, I'm going to be captain one day. That is my goal. Stamets didn't even want to be on the damn ship. Also true. So, yeah. True. Also true. Also true. All right. Let's see if we have any more comments, guys. If you want to comment, um, this is your chance since we are about to wrap up pretty soon. Anything else you guys want to say about this episode before I bring up another comment? Oh, I was going to uh, just bring up Saru, I think, is our first non-human, non-Vulcan, I believe, we have seen do the live long and prosper. Hmm. Oh, wow. Great, great catch, yeah. And um, and he does it better than I can. <laughs> I know. I was very impressed with all of the... Pro- anyway, Doug Jones is just incredible with all of his prosthetic Amazing. acting abilities. But yeah. What else? Oh, Marge says, Bryce. Bryce. I know they've been <laughs> trying to give everyone some more speaking lines, I think, on the on the deck, which I'm hoping we get to see. Um, that was something that got brought up in the Slack last night as we were watching the episode of Deep, Deep Space Nine is that there's such a um, rich storytelling done with some of the secondary characters of that show that when you got those big ensemble episodes, they were so fun to watch. And so I'm hoping because we're getting to know more and more about our our bridge crew that we're going to hopefully get to see some of that play out throughout the series. Well, I don't know if it'll happen yeah. all this season, but I, I'm hoping as it goes on. It'll happen as the show goes on for sure. Um, let's leave with Kern here. He says, I'd love it if it was a Dominion that was responsible for the burn. We'd get some founder action and they know how to play the long game. That is true. Very true. That is very true. Kern also says, looks like we'll get to see the new disco show off its new tech in the combat against the Emerald Chain next week. Should be interesting. Yeah, I want to see those um, detached nacelles in action. Yeah. And see how that works. Next week looks pretty, you know, we've had a couple of, I think, more thought, you know, heavy episodes. Looks like next week we're going to get some some action, some space combat um, with the new ship, as well as some moments, though, if anyone watched the... Um, ready room episode they showed a special clip which is a fun argument scene between Culber and uh, and Giorgio which is a re- is really fun <laughs> to watch so I'm excited yeah. for that yeah I want those two in a room for like a whole hour thank you uh, let's leave on this the Trek nerd says Star Trek is about diverse teams being successful yes that's a great yeah. sentiment to love it to wrap up on Thanks so much, everyone, for watching and for listening to Star Trek Discovery Pod. Uh, remember, you can find us live on YouTube, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Twitch every Thursday. Typically Thursday. Today we did it on a Friday due to the holiday. But every Thursday, 9 p.m. Central, Talking Trek. We have a few more episodes of Discovery to go. And after that, we'll still be talking Trek. Um, Mariah, can you remind everybody how they can find us? Yes. So you can subscribe to the pod wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, we would really appreciate it. You can find links to all of our subscriptions and and links to the show at StarTrekPod.co. Clyde, how else can people can support us? Hang out with us on Patreon. So for donating just $2 an episode, you can hang out in our Slack channel. Check us out at Patreon.com slash 
Star Trek pod. Um, you can do watch alongs. We answer questions. You can talk to us. Um, but yeah, come on by and be part of our Patreon community. Shut up, Grant. Hello, Grant. <laughs> Grant Davis has joined us in the chat asking uh, ridiculous questions that no Star Trek fan should ask. Thank you, well, Grant. Well, someone pointed out, uh, Mike, that Grant is your XO, so maybe we shouldn't be talking smack about Tilly. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> nice. Agreed. All right. Uh, everybody, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Star Trek Pod and tweet about this episode. Why not? Hit the like button on YouTube. Do all the things. And shout out to Karen, who helps up, who helps run our Twitter, and James, who helps run our Insta. You guys are very awesome. Thank you so much for joining us again on the pod. Mariah, where can we find you online? I'm at Mariah Gossett on all platforms. That's Mariah with a Y and a Gossett with two S's and two T's. Clyde Haynes. You can find me at Clyde Haynes on Twitter. You can also find me at uh, keyandclyde.com. That's K-E-I and Clyde.com. Um, yeah. All right. Find me on Twitter and Insta at Mike Moody Garcia. Live long and prosper. Bye. Happy birthday, Grant. Happy birthday, Grant. <laughs>